you so much, Hannah and Bridger and Susanna. Would you take your Bibles with me and go to the book of Hebrews, chapter number three? At this time, our children can be dismissed, grades one through three. This is a special program for you. You can just head out those back doors. Teachers are waiting for you to uh, take you to that classroom there, I think 104. It occurred to me as we were singing that last hymn that when we say the words, it is well with my soul, we are not just saying, I'm good, or I'm doing okay, or I'm getting by. We're saying that the state of my soul in relationship to my God is well. That's right. And it's because of the faithfulness of our God that each of those stanzas describes obstacles to our faith and how in Jesus Christ every obstacle is provided for. And friends, in our own book that we're looking at this morning, in the book of Hebrews, this is written by an author who is deeply passionate that Christians persevere in their faith against every obstacle. And this author, even through just the barest, quickest skimming of the text, is clearly convinced that Jesus Christ is the person in whom is every single resource necessary for endurance in our Christian faith. In our passage this morning, we will see warning not to fall away, but there's greater comfort in this passage here than warning. There's greater assurance than potential downfall because whatever obstacle exists in your life to persevere in a wholehearted devotion to Christ, Jesus has already provided every resource necessary. Would you go to the Lord with me in prayer, and let's ask for his help this morning. Our gracious God and our heavenly Father, we are thankful that you have revealed yourself supremely through Jesus Christ, and that the Holy Spirit has given us the gospel through Jesus in this inspired word. I pray that we would treasure this, that we would submit to it, that we would understand it, that we would believe it, and that we would obey it. I pray that all this would occur by the power of your spirit this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. From the very beginning of scripture, we see a crucial truth. God will have a people for himself with whom he enjoys fellowship forever. God is determined to create a people for himself with whom he will fellowship forever. And that word forever refers not merely to something in eternity future, but something that has already begun for us believers. Think back. In the Garden of Eden, God walked in the garden, in the cool of the day, we're told, for mutual fellowship between Eve, Adam, and himself. But when the couple sinned, in God's infinite grace, he didn't cast them off. Instead, he clothed them. Instead of instantly killing them for their rebellion against their creator, God continued to provide for them offspring and gave them the promise with offspring that there would be a savior through their own line provided, and we find later on that it comes through the line of Seth. Further in the Genesis narrative, we come to the character Abraham. And God revealed to Abraham that it would be through his offspring that the Savior would come. And that God specifically intended to create a nation from Abraham's descendants that would serve him. This is that fellowship that we see again. Now this nation that God creates from Abraham's offspring would be enslaved for a time period. But then God himself would deliver them from their captors in Egypt and lead them into a land that God himself would give to them. And so briefly, little flyby, we come to a man named Moses. And you remember this man. This is the one who was scared of public speaking. Many of you identify with Moses. He struggled with his temper. A few more of you identify. Moses lacked administrative skills. But this man, Moses, was chosen by God and empowered by God for his work. And his work involved a little bit more than just waving his staff 
and making flies appear or seas part ways. You see, Moses occupied perhaps the most unique role of any human in the history of redemption and scripture. Because Moses was the mediator of the relationship between God and the nation of Israel. In this role of being the go-between of this covenant, Moses ruled over the people of Israel as a kind of king. In fact, when Miriam challenged Moses' authority, she was struck by God with leprosy. Moses was the king of Israel before they even had a king. He was kind of a proto-king who ruled Israel with the law of God, which God himself gave to the people of Israel. Not only was Moses a king, though, but we need to understand that in this role of being the the covenant mediator, the go-between between God and the people, Moses occupied the role and office of a prophet. You see, when Moses was at Mount Sinai with the people of Israel, the people of Israel had no stomach to hear the voice of the Lord directly or see anything of the glory of God up close and personal. Rather, they begged Moses, you go up, you listen to God, and then you come back and tell us what God has said. So Moses goes up into the mountain and there he receives the Ten Commandments. He receives the covenant from God for the people. He comes back down the mountain and he tells the people what God said. And that is exactly the ministry of a prophet, to give revelation from the Lord to God's people. Now, practically, this is very similar to what preachers do today, but instead of receiving any new revelation or knowledge of the future, pastors are given the task of saying what God has said in his word. Now, Moses was this proto-king of Israel. He is a prophet of the Lord. But not only that, but Moses was also a priest before the Lord. And you might be saying, well, wasn't Aaron the high priest? Yes, Aaron, Moses' brother, was the high priest, and he held that office officially. But there's something very unique about Moses in his ministry. When the people sinned or rebelled, who is it that goes before the Lord and begs the Lord not to kill off the entire nation and start over with him? It is primarily the intercession of the man Moses and secondarily Aaron, this other priest, that achieves mercy before the Lord. And for each of these offices that Moses fulfilled, prophet, king, priest who prays before the Lord and intercedes on their behalf, Moses was faithful in each of those positions. Each of those roles Moses executed faithfully. In fact, in the book of Numbers, chapter number 12, the very passage that we referenced earlier where Aaron and Miriam rebel, God has this to say about Moses. Numbers, chapter number 12, verse number 6, God says, hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him, I speak mouth to mouth, clearly, and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. God calls Moses faithful in all his house. Now, this faithfulness of Moses, as we understand perfectly, is not a moral perfection. We could start listing off Moses' flaws, foibles, and failures easily. But rather, his faithfulness refers to his execution of his offices before the Lord for the people of Israel. And friends, in our passage of Scripture this morning, in Hebrews chapter 3, the writer of the book of Hebrews invites you and me to see a comparison between the man Moses... And the God-man Jesus. Would you look at this passage with me and we'll read verses 1 through 6. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, listen, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. 
For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. And so to reiterate what I began by saying is that this author is deeply passionate that Christians persevere in their faith against every obstacle. And he is supremely convinced that in the person of Jesus Christ is every single resource necessary for endurance in our Christian faith. In our passage today, I want us to see the call to Christians from the author and the comparison between Moses and Jesus. Those are the two parts to this message. Now, this Christian calling is introduced at the very beginning of our passage in verse number one, and it's concluded or realized in the final verse of our passage in verse number six. So you've got one point, but it kind of comes in two waves, and so we'll treat it in that sense. We'll start with this Christian call as it's introduced. Notice again that verse number one in chapter three, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. Now the author begins with this word, therefore, And we know that the author is building on the previous section, which a few weeks ago we had the opportunity to consider Jesus Christ in his role of being our elder brother and the ministry that he has to us and the grace that he offers to us in that position, we being adopted into the family of God. And the author of Hebrews wants us to continue to understand these truths about Jesus Christ as the divine man who accomplished our salvation And he wants us now to draw some essential conclusions about our Christian life and calling in this. We can see this because he immediately includes us in this by addressing us directly. See how he says, therefore, holy brothers. This term, holy brothers, is a term that it just refers to all Christians. Those who have Christ for a brother are brothers and sisters of one another. But what is this idea that the author speaks here of a heavenly calling? Well, this idea of calling in Scripture almost always has to do with a work which God does for us on our behalf. Something that's part of his plan and his design into which he brings us. And I believe that here in this passage, our heavenly calling has reference to our eternal destiny to rule and reign with Christ. Now, the reason I believe that is because Quite a few verses earlier, if you were to study out in chapter number 2, verses 5 through 9 show kind of the strata of glory, if you will. You have the Godhead, you have the triune eternal God, you've got angels, and then you have you and I who were made a little lower than the heavenly beings. And that psalm is quoted in that passage to demonstrate that fact. And Jesus, in Hebrews 2, was made lower than the angels for the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And in his exaltation to the throne of God to rule and reign, you and I become co-heirs of that inheritance by virtue of our adoption into the family of God. It is not angels that he sends to, to minister. Angels are not adopted by God, but brothers and sisters, if you have faith in Christ, you and I are. And the wonderful, amazing truth of Scripture is that Christ was condescended to us and to our humanity in order that he might raise us in our humanity to a position of exaltation and glory with Christ that had never been before imagined by any living. This heavenly calling is to rule and reign with Christ in glory forever. Friends, you and I must give careful thought and attention to what this author tells us next about Jesus Christ. Everything good about you, everything with regards to your eternal destiny, 
is wrapped up in Jesus Christ, his person, and his work. And the author of the book tells us exactly that. Look at his command to us. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. This is the command that we are given as believers on the basis of who Jesus is. This word consider means to give careful thought and attention. And as the author told us just one chapter prior, we must give careful attention to the things that we've heard, lest at any time they begin to slip. One pastor explains it this way, Jesus is so excellent and so highly exalted above all that whereas he was humbled for a season, it was unspeakably for the benefit and advantage of the church, you and me. It cannot be but your duty to consider him. That is both what he is in himself and what he is unto us. Friends, you and I must consider and give careful attention and careful thought to the person and work of Jesus Christ to the end of receiving perfect bliss and eternal glory. Ignore Jesus Christ to the peril of your own soul. You might say, though, yes, yes, I know about Jesus. I put my faith in him for salvation. Now, with my soul secure, for what purpose must I consider Jesus? But friends, this betrays just a fundamental lack of understanding of the basic truths about Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus is the source of all true knowledge of God. Your relationship with God day by day is dependent on your knowledge of and submission to that knowledge of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the source of your happiness and satisfaction. Your failure to move on from elementary principles means that you're denied the joy of close intimacy and fellowship with God. Jesus is all of your daily strength. This idea here, that Jesus is the source of all your spiritual strength, is closest to the heart of the writer of Hebrews. Your failure to give careful and daily attention, consideration, thought towards Jesus endangers your perseverance in the faith. Verse number six gives us both the warning and the hope to this entire passage. We are his, Jesus' house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. This is a continual profession of faith that clings to Jesus Christ as the daily object of it. So let's turn our attention with this writer of the book to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. What is it that this author desires for us to consider about Jesus? To what aspect of him should we give our careful thought and attention? Well, he wants us to give careful thought to Jesus in his offices and in his person. I want us to see, first of all, the office of Jesus as prophet. Notice how in verse number one there, holy brothers, you who share in a holy calling, consider Jesus the apostle of our confession. Now, what in the world does this mean that Jesus is an apostle? Well, apostle really is just a generic word that means a messenger. A messenger is an apostle, an apostle is a messenger. You remember, of course, that Jesus had his own apostles. What does that mean? Well, it means that he had people with whom he had entrusted the message of his redemption to the world. But here in our passage, Jesus is called the apostle of our confession. And what that means, quite simply, is that Jesus is the messenger from God who brings to us the truth about our sin and how we can be saved. His role as an apostle is to reveal to you and to me the Father who lives eternally. This is the culmination of the goal of every prophet who ever lived prior to Jesus. Other prophets gave limited messages from God. But to see and know Jesus is to see and know the Father himself. This is exactly what Jesus told his disciple Philip. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, Philip, and you still don't know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. 
How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? This theme is taken up by the Apostle Paul in his writings. Colossians 1 tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, and that in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Our own book, the book of Hebrews, tells us in chapter number 1 that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus the prophet has pulled back the veil we could never pull back on our own. God is a spirit and you and I are flesh. God is life and you are dependent on God for your every breath. God has all knowledge and you know only that which God has enabled you to know and revealed to you. Friends, in our weak state of total dependence for every aspect of our existence, Jesus has revealed the Father to us. And we have seen the Father in the face of Jesus Christ and have found God to be gracious to rebels and to sinners. Friends, Jesus comes to you and to me with a message from God himself as a herald from the king of the land. And the message from almighty God is this. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Anyone who comes to me, I will never cast out. Look unto me and be saved all ends of the earth. Friends, Jesus preaches peace to you who were far off. He says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And he tells us, go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be full. Jesus tells us on the authority of Almighty God that God so loved you that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Have you made peace with God? Jesus is the only way for you to have forgiveness of your sins. He is the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. You might say, what is it that I need to do in order to have this forgiveness of God for all the evil things that I've ever done? And Jesus responds to you, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Simply trust that his life and his death are the perfect payment for your debt before God. Jesus died in your place so that you don't have to die. Jesus took God's wrath against sin so that you don't have to come to judgment Trust in Jesus alone to be saved. But brothers and sisters, you and I as believers must see another truth in the role of Christ as a prophet. That revelation from Jesus of God's love, mercy, justice, and grace through himself isn't just for one moment at your conversion. It's an eternal revelation. Jesus will continue to reveal the Father to his children as long as the Trinity exists. Jesus continues right this very moment to reveal the Father to you through the word of God by his own spirit. Friends, without Jesus executing his office of prophet, you and I would be hopeless and without God in the world. No perfect prophet in Jesus, no salvation. And with Jesus as our eternal divine prophet, we have everlasting and ever-growing intimacy with the triune God. This is the basis for our eternal satisfaction and joy, that you can know God. Not only is Jesus our eternal prophet in this verse, but he's also our high priest. See this also in verse number one, that Jesus is the apostle and the high priest of our confession. Do you see it there? Not only have we described Jesus and seen him named as our great prophet or apostle, but also as our priest. And the difference is this, 
The prophet brings messages from God to the people, but a priest makes intercession and sacrifices to God from the people. And brothers and sisters, Jesus is our great high priest whose sacrifice of his own body on the tree was such an effective sacrifice that it guarantees our death to sin and life under righteousness. By his wounds, we're healed. His sacrifice as a priest was perfect. And his prayers before God are constantly heard and heeded. This is what I believe Charles Wesley meant when he penned the words to his hymn, Five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. They pour effectual, that means effective or working prayers, they strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh forgive, they cry, nor let that ransomed sinner die. The Father hears him pray, his dear anointed one. He can't turn away the presence of his Son. His Spirit answers to the call and tells me I am born of God. Brothers and sisters, you have a great high priest whose name is love, who ever lives and pleads for you. God always heeds the prayers of his own dear son. And Jesus accomplishes his office of high priest with perfect grace and love and effectiveness. He offered himself as a sacrifice for sin and he prays for you every second of every day. And he perfectly understands how to even pray for you. Because as we learn in this book, As a true human, Jesus is sympathetic to every one of your weaknesses. Jesus never tires of bringing your name before the Father. Jesus takes delight in helping you in your weaknesses. Will you give careful attention and thought to him? Will you give obedience and love and loyalty to him? We must not only consider Jesus in his office as a prophet and priest, but we have to also consider him as our king. Now, in this sense, Jesus is not specifically named in that office, but he is described in this office, especially in relationship to Moses. So a bit further on in our passage, look down at verse number 5. Look at verse number 5 with me. Now, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Moses ruled over the people of God as a steward. And as we'll see here, Moses' life served to preview in shadows what Christ is in blazing reality. Moses was just a servant. Jesus is the heir of the estate. Moses was a temporary regent, but Jesus is the crown prince. Brothers and sisters, Jesus rules over the house of God, the people of God. He reigns from the throne of his forefather David with the authority of his heavenly father, God. The kingship of Christ was assured and granted to the Son by virtue of his accomplishment of the work of redemption. Romans chapter number 1 tells us that on his resurrection, he was declared to be the Son of God in power, a reference to his rule and reign, the reception of the promises of God to have a kingdom. But his rule and his reign still has more to come. Right now, as we speak, Jesus, the king, is gathering a people for himself from every nation, tribe, and tongue. This people will be his own inheritance, his own special people, and they will stand before his throne and give praise and honor and glory to the lamb that was slain. You and I have a role in this kingdom. We're given the joyful task of proclaiming his salvation to the ends of the earth. You and I are called to be a part of that in-gathering of people. But friends, more than just a plan for the end of time, Jesus' kingship has very definite implications for you in your life right now. Because he is king of all and you are his subjects, fellow servants with Moses in the house of God, Jesus holds absolute authority over every single aspect of your life. You owe Jesus allegiance and undivided loyalty in 
every one of your pursuits. Choose you this day whom you will serve. That's what Joshua told the people. And Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. You claim Jesus as king. Don't fail to recognize him as the son who rules over the house of God. We've seen this introduction to the character of Jesus, but the author wants us not merely to be amazed by the greatness of Christ, but he wants us to see specifically how supreme Jesus is over Moses by comparison. And so it's at this point in the passage that you and I are invited to compare Moses and Jesus. Now, we discussed Moses earlier, and we've already seen a picture of Jesus, so I think the similarities and the differences are already falling into place in your minds, hopefully. What are we meant to see in this comparison? Let's look again at verse uh, 2 and begin there and read through verse number 6 again. Verse number 2 talks about Jesus who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we're his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence. Let's see two similarities between Moses and Jesus in this passage. We see the first similarity in the offices that they held. Moses and Jesus similarly held the offices of prophet and priest in that they brought the revelation of God to the people and the prayers of the people and their own before God. They were similar in their offices of rule and reign, that Moses was faithful over the house of God and Jesus is faithful over the house of God. So we see that in the execution of their offices, Moses and Jesus are similar. But they're also similar in terms of their faithfulness, that they both executed their offices well. They did what they were charged to do in those roles. And though Moses was not perfect, God himself called Moses faithful in all his house. And that's referenced in our very passage here in verse number two, and I hope you caught that allusion. But friends, the faithfulness of Moses to perform his office did not in any way guarantee a people that would be faithful to persevere in the covenant from God. Moses' faithfulness did not result in Israel's faithfulness in their relationship with God. Time and time again, during Moses' lifetime, and then for the hundreds of years following, the people of Israel rebelled against the law of God in one cataclysmic backslide to the next. And in this way, the contrast between Jesus and Moses comes into stark reality that Jesus is supreme in the execution of his offices, not in terms of his faithfulness, but in terms of his ability because he is supreme in his person. Moses was a mere man, but Jesus is the God-man. This has already been shown in the very first verses of the book of Hebrews. He is there named as the creator of the world, the radiance of the glory of the Father. Jesus was exalted above angels, but he became flesh like you and like me. John 1 tells us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Whatever faithfulness Moses had as a man was not enough to guarantee a faithful people for God. But what Jesus has as the God-man, the perfect divine one, who is like us in every way but without sin, he has the power to execute his offices in such a way to guarantee the faithfulness of God's people. But he's not only supreme over Moses and therefore worthy of more glory in virtue of his person, but also by virtue of his own relationship to the Father. You see, Moses was a mere servant, 
But Jesus rules over the house of God as a son who receives everything of the fathers for his inheritance. Jesus gets something and has something with the father that Moses could only dream of. And this is Moses who saw the form of God and spoke to him mouth to mouth and clearly. Jesus, being himself eternal God, existing before the foundations of the world in perfect power, who himself was the agent of creation, Jesus has an intimacy and therefore an effectiveness before the Father that Moses was never able to have, nor should Moses have had. And this is where we begin to understand that Moses all along was meant to prepare us for something greater than himself. Jesus is, therefore, as this passage tells us, infinitely worthy of more glory. Because Jesus' effectiveness as prophet, priest, and king is greater than Moses' effectiveness. His relationship to the Father is perfect. It's unhindered by sin, and it's intimate like nothing you can imagine. This is why Jesus is now and will forever be the object of adoration in the heart of every true Christian. Friends, do you love the glory of Jesus Christ? To see him in all his perfection? Do you love him for his own sake? Friends, when we're commanded by the author to consider Jesus, can you think of anything more joyful for a Christian to do? Like, okay, yes, this is already what I want to do. But we need to see here at the close of this passage, the final bookend to what we began with, and that is the Christian call that's laid upon our lives because of this person, Jesus Christ. What's the result in our lives of considering Jesus? As we've begun to obey the author right now here in this hour, what should or can or ought to be the result of that consideration and careful thought towards Jesus? Well, you and I... We are the product of the person and work of Christ. This is the point of this passage. What Christ has accomplished and the ministries in which Jesus is engaged brings you into eternal glory. He's made you a part of his house. Do you see that in verse number six? We are his house. And he ever lives to love and secure his own. His work is effective There's not one true believer that he will ever lose. Jesus was faithful in all his offices to be our redeemer. And friends, this passage calls you and I to a kind of faithfulness ourselves. And underlying this command to be faithful, based on what we know of Christ, is confidence that whatever this faithfulness requires... We can do it because Christ has provided every resource for it. So let's look for a minute and just consider some of these words that the author uses to describe this calling and this faithfulness. Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, verse 6, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. What is the faithfulness to which you and I are commanded? Faithfulness in the house of Christ is a perseverance in the profession of our faith. Now, a profession of faith is the declaration of what you believe. Think back to when you personally came to faith in Christ. What happened? Well, you, in faith, declared that you trusted in nothing but Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. You called on Christ alone to be your Savior. That's a profession of faith. But the kind of profession here in this passage isn't just like this bare profession where, you know, you have people mindlessly chanting a mantra or a creed. This kind of profession has certain characteristics to it. Do you see this? It says that we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. What does it mean to hold fast our confidence? Well, to hold fast means to continue in something. It means that what you're anchored to or secured to isn't going anywhere. You know, it's the result of that perfect knot that you tied when you helped your friend move. And in the U-Haul truck, you have got a series of knots that the Boy Scouts of America are calling you trying to figure out what you did. Because that thing is holding fast. 
It's not going to go anywhere. That's what we're called to do, to, to hold fast this profession. This is a perseverance in our confidence. This is where the author of the book, he kind of shows us a little bit of himself because it shows that he is deeply concerned, not just that you and I are on our way to heaven, but that you come to heaven by way of holding fast to Christ through daily attention to Jesus. But what I think so interesting is that this phrase, boasting in our hope, this has to do with a lived out certainty. You see, people who boast are confident about something. When we use the word boast, we usually mean some sort of like sinful flaw of arrogance and thinking that you're better than everybody else because of something that's true about you that's just not true about other people. But that's not the idea in this boasting. Instead, think of a child who's just been told by their parents of a special event. You know, grandparents are coming on a special trip or there's a a special party, or they're going on this awesome vacation that they've been talking about, dreaming about, and you've been telling them, no, 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 even though you've been planning this vacation for years. When you tell a young child about that special thing, young children can't help but share that information with literally everything that breathes. They are so excited for that event. In fact, it's usually up to the parents to, like, temper that excitement just a little bit and to help them realize that, you know, life happens and, you know, things might go wrong and, you know, okay, well, yeah, that's the plan, that's the plan, it's not, you know, well, you know, if the weather's good or if grandparents are feeling up to it or if you're good, then we'll do it, you know, but not if you're bad because then we won't. Um, But here in this passage, the boasting in our hope There's nothing to temper that excitement. There's nothing from God that says, okay, well, just cool it just a little bit. You know, take it back a little bit. That's the plan anyways. There's nothing in this passage that could possibly lower a Christian's enthusiasm that our home is in heaven, that we're destined to rule and reign with Christ in that hour. Prophet, priest, and king currently lives above to minister to my needs right now. This is the boasting of our hope. This uncontainable joy and confidence that what we've been told by God definitely will come to pass because he said it. Just like the child says, mom and dad said we were going to go to wherever. In short, This author is telling us that when we consider Jesus in an ongoing way, it produces an endurance in our faith that grows ever closer to God with an overwhelming joy. Under the inspiration of the Spirit, this is what every Christian needs to know, not just the readers of this book in their own time. This is God's will for your life that you would give such pride of place in your life to Jesus Christ that your faith is not merely something that exists like a fish in a bowl, but something that thrives and grows in obvious joy and closeness to God in spite of every obstacle that assaults us. And obstacles do assault us. What are the obstacles that prevent us from this kind of perseverance, this joyful endurance that comes from considering the person of Christ? As we close this morning, I want to just briefly bring three things to your attention that I believe regularly distract believers from considering Christ and things that threaten your perseverance and things that, uh, and I want to show you in that that Jesus has already provided every resource for overcoming these obstacles. Obstacle number one to your consideration of Jesus and subsequent perseverance in joy and confidence. The lies of the world. They're a constant distraction from actively considering Christ because the world comes to you and promises you pleasure now while Christ and his heaven seem far off and uncertain. It says, you're accepted, you're beloved of God, He'll love you the same if you give your attention and love to this life rather than prepare earnestly for the next. But friends, this is a lie. 
Jesus has provided holiness for you in this life and not just in the age to come. Do not love the world or the things that are in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Because all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away. And the lust thereof. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. The world may come to you and say, well, come on now. You've been getting a little too intense as a Christian lately. You're starting to annoy people with your nonstop spirituality. Give it a rest. You're doing pretty good, okay? You see anybody else as far along as you are? Don't be so obnoxious about your relationship with Jesus. You don't have to talk about it all the time. Wait to see if others do it first. Then you can kind of just kind of keep, keep tempo with everybody. You know, nobody likes it when somebody runs way out in front. Friends, this is also a lie of the world. And it is designed to prevent you from considering Jesus Christ. But Jesus, your apostle and high priest and king, has granted you every resource to overcome this obstacle. What does Jesus say? Jesus says, everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands, every worldly pleasure for my sakes and the gospels will receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. Friends, No matter what the world tells you, every sacrifice made for Christ's sake will be richly repaid. Brothers and sisters, there's not one earthly pleasure that you could possibly forego on this earth for the sake of Christ that you will regret in glory. You will never come to heaven and think, if only I had given a little more time and attention to the pursuits of mortal living. I sure do wish I hadn't been so focused on my eternal destiny. That will never happen. No matter the financial sacrifice, no matter the reputation that you suffer, every sacrifice for Christ will be richly repaid. Do not believe the lies of the world. But it's possible It's possible that it's not a lie of the world that distracts you from persevering and joy and confidence, but it's an ashamed conscience. You don't study the scriptures because you can't. You can't remember the last time you really felt close to God. Your prayers, when you do pray, are short. They're so repetitive Because you just struggle to believe that God could forgive you. Friends, from God himself, if any of you sins, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Do not let an ashamed conscience distract you from considering Jesus and persevering in the joy that he offers to you. Cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. He already knows every downfall of your heart and he died for you and for those sins. He knows the way that your heart condemns you, but he loves you and he's greater than your heart. Don't trust in your ability to forgive yourself. Trust in the one who made a once-for-all sacrifice for sin. But it may be that you are distracted and struggling with persevering in joy because of a heavy heart. Not because of an ashamed conscience, but just a heavy heart. You may be tempted to fail in your boldness before the Father or in your boasting in your hope due to deep sorrow, a severed relationship, loss due to death, a broken reputation, long-term family strife, constant financial pressure. Friends, a heavy heart can be deadly to a believer. You don't have energy for your work 
You don't have energy for Christian fellowship. You don't want to talk to people. You can barely read the Bible. You struggle to sleep at night. The pain's constant. You may feel heaviness on your chest. God doesn't seem interested in your joy at all. He's distant. Sometimes it seems like God's working his plan for his glory at whatever collateral damage it may cause you. These are deep waters. Because some of you are going through incredibly difficult, life-changing trials. And there's not any easy answers, but there is a person for you to consider. Consider him who is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was despised and rejected indeed of men. For we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted like you and I are, but without sin. So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Your heavy heart often tempts you to fall from confidently approaching God, but your heavy heart is the very thing that ought to drive you to God's throne, for it's there that you will find rest for your souls. The God of all comfort is there, and his son Jesus Christ ever lives to make intercession for his people. Now, brothers and sisters, you and I face many more obstacles to persevering in our confidence and our boasting and our hope. But we have one even greater than Moses who has accomplished a greater redemption and holds his offices with such glory and grace that it provides every resource to be faithful to him even when everyone else falls. Consider Jesus and be faithful. Let's pray. Our gracious God and our Heavenly Father, you have been so infinitely merciful to us in giving us your own dear Son, someone greater than Moses, with greater power, holding his offices in greater effectiveness, with perfect faithfulness, and Lord, we need such grace for ourselves. Lord, by your grace, would you cause us to consider the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who's fully satisfied for all of our sins, and so delivers us from the power of the devil that apart from the will of our heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from our head. Yes, and all things must work for us and for our salvation. Would you allow us to find all of our comfort in life and death in this promise? Father, for those who are here who are weak and struggling, would they run to the throne of grace to find grace and help in time of need? For those who are in sin and in rebellion, would you bring them to confess their sins to God so that he can cleanse them? Lord God, would you grow our joy and our perseverance in every obstacle of life? This through Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name.